Before we do anything else, let's pray together. Heavenly Father, as we just sang, death is dead and Christ is risen. And for that we praise and glorify your name. And we look to your word now for, for more reasons to praise and glorify your name for the risen Christ. I pray, Lord, that, that through your word and by the power of your spirit, you would transform our hearts, that you would sink this truth deeper into our minds and our souls, and ultimately, Lord, that uh, we would not be able to contain ourselves with our, with our worship and our praise of you. Father, you promised that you would do us this in your, in your word, and so, Father, we, we bank on those promises now and ask that you would. It's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen. Amen. Well, good morning. Ah, oh, that was weak. Good morning. good morning. There you go. Thank you. Almost lost you there. Once a year, you get the suit, so get it out of your system, Brian. You good? We're going to be in Revelation chapter 1 if you want to start heading there in your Bibles. And if you're worried you missed something, yes, this is Easter, and yes, we are going to be in Revelation. And here's why. On Friday, I asked you if you could see the, the servant who was forsaken by God, dead, and buried. But he didn't stay dead, did he? Amen? Amen. Good. So before we get started, I want to just make sure we understand what we're looking at. Because the book of Revelation can be a little intimidating, the first thing I want you to understand is that the book of Revelation is not intended to scare us. It's intended to encourage us. What we hear in this letter is not intended to worry us, but to prepare us and to strengthen us and to give us the courage we need to not only endure, but to overcome. Revelation is not some horrific future event that we should be anxious about. I'll give you two examples for free. First example, the locusts in Revelation are not Apache helicopters. It's not what they are. Number two, the vaccine is not the mark of the beast. Now, feel what you want about the vaccine, but I tell you what I get a kick out is people running around on their phones. Oh my God, they're going to they're gonna track us through the vaccine. Hello? If you really don't want the government tracking you, get rid of your phone. That's the first thing. This book is, is about courage and comfort and endurance. And here's the second thing. The book, of a, uh, the book of Revelation is, is a letter that was written to specific people in history. And what that means is, is that it cannot mean something to us that it didn't mean to them. God wouldn't do that to them. God wouldn't write a letter to people that, that were being terribly persecuted. They're being excluded from the economic, economic system. They're being thrown to animals for sport. They're, they're, they're being dipped in oil and used as human torches. God wouldn't do that to them. I mean, Peter and Paul and Timothy were all executed publicly just to make a point. Those are some pretty big hitters in the, in the early church. I mean, imagine if the headline tomorrow was 
uh, John MacArthur, John Piper, and Alistair Begg were all dragged out of their churches by authorities and shot in the head in front of their congregation. That's what, what this church is going through that this letter is written to. That's what's happening. And, and it would be very cruel for God to say to these churches, Hey, listen, in 3,000 years, things are going to be fine. That doesn't do anything to them. God didn't inspire John to write this letter to first, first century uh, uh, Christians with a footnote that says, Hey, listen, this doesn't mean anything to you. It's going to mean something to people in several thousand years, but hey, it's entertaining, so go ahead and read it anyway. So I want us to, to sympathize with the original recipients of this letter because it meant something to them. We have to be careful not to read this and think, hey, we would do much better. We would sing praise songs in the Colosseum and we would you know, go against the government and we would stand up for our faith. We barely have to wear masks and we're freaking out. So I have my doubts. These people are being brutalized in a way that we can hardly imagine. They're being, they're living in an age where to be a Christian means to remain poor forever, to not be able to, to participate in, in the economic system. It means that you are going to be hounded and marginalized and beaten. And you're not going to have any legal recompense at all. So this letter means something to them. But does that mean the opposite is true, that it doesn't mean anything to us? Well, of course not. Again, God wouldn't do that. He wouldn't write a letter to us and say, hey, this meant something to people 2,000 years ago, but it has nothing to do with you, so you can skip it. So here's what's the same for us as it was for them. In the face of persecution, in the face of a culture that was openly hostile toward them, the pressure to enjoy the pleasures of Rome and the comfort of Rome and the wealth of Rome and the peace of Rome and the sensuality of Rome, that pressure was immense. And the same is not only true for us today, it's growing truer as we speak. The temptation from our enemy for us to enjoy the pleasures and the comforts and the wealth of our culture rather than endure the, the growing persecution is huge. And so what God knew is that people like that need something to encourage them. Something to strengthen them. Something that they could hold on to just to get out of bed the next morning. So I want to start by asking you something. I want to ask you, who do you picture? Just picture Jesus in your mind. And who is it that you picture? Maybe you grew up in a home that had the, you know, the crucifix and then Jesus holding the lamb right next to it in your parents' hallway. Maybe that's the picture you have of Jesus holding the lamb. Maybe when you picture Jesus, you picture you know, him hanging on a cross, kind of like the Passion movie or something like that. Maybe you picture like Fabio Jesus from the you know, Easter special. He's like 6'4 with long blonde hair and he walks around with that creepy smile all the time, you know. His, his robe is open just enough. You can see he's ripped. Is that the... Well, it is now. <laughs> Brain stamp. When you picture Jesus, what do you picture? Who do you picture? Because, because whoever you picture, the question is, is, what does that picture do for you? 
Because the Bible would tell us that the resurrected Jesus ought to do something for us, just like it did for the first century Christians. The risen Christ should do something for the people who are simply trying to exist in the Roman Empire, and it should do something for us as well. So what did God think those people needed to encourage and comfort and strengthen them? What he thought they needed, what he thought those first century Christians who were being persecuted needed, is a right picture of the risen Christ. And what is a right picture of the risen Christ? If you've made it there yet, we'll begin in verse 12 of Revelation chapter 1. John wrote, Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the lampstands one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many, thunder, many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was like the sun shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Now, it's important to understand how this kind of literature works. Because we're not an image-heavy culture. We're a fact-heavy culture when it comes to, to learning. But this kind of literature is written with a bunch of images that we're supposed to think and feel. This kind of literature, Revelation, called apocalyptic literature... It's intended to ignite our feelings as, as well as while it informs us. It's meant to grab hold of our emotions, yank them up to the surface, and place them right next, right next to what we're, what we're learning. And, and, and so this is not intended to be read literally. If, if you're like, well, why didn't they just come out and say it? You know, why do we have to have all this business about dragons and stars and earthquakes? Why didn't they just say a woman had a baby? He started a church and they're going to, you know, kick the trash out of the devil. Why don't you just say it? Well, because God knows that imagery does something to us that we need. There's a seminary professor and a pastor named Daryl Johnson. And he wrote this. He said, imagery has the power to hook us deep inside. Images can quickly and effectively convey that which we struggle to put into words. Imagery goes beyond the intellect and through the emotions into the imagination, grabbing hold of us at the deepest recesses of our being. Imagery goes beyond the intellect and through the emotions into the imagination, informing the intellect and igniting the emotions. So, for example, I could tell you that Mike Tyson is about 5 foot 10, he weighed about 220 pounds in his prime, and he had a record of 44 knockouts over 50-something fights. I could tell you that. Or, in addition to those facts, I could put you in the ring with Mr. Tyson, and I could describe to you how sports analysts have calculated that getting hit by this man is akin to dropping a 200-pound anvil on your head from five feet. Now, that information means something more. Now I've got hold of your imagination. 
So when God saw his people being burned alive and put on pikes and fed to the lions, he didn't think they only needed to know who Jesus was. They didn't just need to know that. He knew they needed to feel that their risen Savior was far more terrifying than any of their enemies. God knows that when things get difficult, when life gets scary, when this world seems to have the upper hand, he knows that we, just like them, need to know that our risen Lord is far more terrifying than our enemy. Look at the imagery that John uses to grab hold of our emotions and, and allow yourself to feel what he is saying. Look back at verse 12. He says, Then I turned to see the voice of one who was speaking to me, and on turning I saw seven lampstands, and in the midst of the lampstands one like a son of man. Now you might think that refers to Jesus' humanity, but it doesn't. It's the opposite. The term son of man, it comes from Daniel chapter 7. Just after Daniel had spent some quality time with the lions, he had this terrifying dream. And don't think like a cheesy, you know, kind of weird dream about beasts. Think a terrifying dream that you can't wake up from. He describes these four beasts that are coming out of the sea. And he says the first one was like a lion with eagle's wings, but it had a kind of human face and it thought like a man. Then he said the second one was like a huge bear with three bloody ribs in its mouth because it was told by a voice to devour a lot of flesh. That's what bears do. They eat the midsection of people. The third was like a leopard who had four heads and four wings on its back. And the fourth was the worst. All he could say was that it was a terrifying beast with ten horns that was indescribably strong. And it had great iron teeth. And what was left of humanity that it didn't devour, this beast broke into pieces with its feet. So Daniel has this vision and he thinks to himself, he want, well, first he thinks to himself, no more falafel for me before I go to bed. But then he thinks to himself, it's all over. What is he going to do? So, so, so he gets up, he changes his pants, he gets a drink of water, he goes back to bed and he has another vision. The other vision, the next vision he has, he's shown the one who would annihilate those beasts with very little effort. In Daniel chapter 7, verse 13 and 14, here's what he saw. He says, I saw in the night vision, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. He wasn't the son of man. He just looked like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. So when John saw, well, let me back up. When John said he saw someone standing in the midst of the lampstands who looked like the Son of Man, he doesn't mean he saw a Son of Man. He just looked like a Son of Man. But this person has everlasting dominion. He saw someone who could and would destroy the terrifying beast that he had seen earlier. Because this, this person he saw has the power and the authority over all creation. Nations and people, whether they want him to or not. So John did not see Jesus holding a lamb. Nor did he see Jesus on the cross. And he certainly didn't see Fabio Jesus. 
The one who John saw was the risen Christ, whose kingdom cannot be destroyed. And he saw him standing in dominion and power, and he fell on his face as though dead. So let me ask you again, when you think of Jesus, who do you see? Because look what, what else John saw. What he says in, in, in verse 13. He saw this one who looked like the son of man, who was clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. Now that term long robe or a, or a robe reaching down to his feet, your translation might say, it's not used anywhere else in the New Testament. But in the Old Testament, it's always uh, used to describe the high priest, especially because of that golden sash around his chest. He's describing the special breastplate that the high priest wore that had the Urim and the Thummim in it next to the 12 stones that represented Israel. But why does John describe him this way? Well, you have to understand what the high priest meant to John. In the Old Testament, you weren't allowed to go before God. I think we take that for granted. In the Old Testament... The high priest would have to sacrifice a lamb and take the blood of that lamb into the temple to go before God after he sprinkled it on the Ark of the Covenant in your stead. But here's the thing. The high priest was not tasked with sacrificing a lamb specifically. The high priest was just told to sacrifice the most innocent thing he could. And the most innocent thing they had was a little baby lamb. But the high priest that John saw had something far more innocent and more righteous to sacrifice. The high priest that John saw had sacrificed himself. So the high priest that John sees here, he's so perfect and he's so innocent that not only is there no longer a need for another high priest, he was so perfect that even when he sacrificed himself, he couldn't stay dead. The high priest that John sees, he's standing among these lampstands with dominion and power, and listen to me, with decisive, final forgiveness for all of our sins. So when you think of Jesus, who do you see? Then John describes something else. Look at the beginning of verse 14. He says, the hairs of his head were white, like white wool and like snow. Now, elsewhere in the Bible, this description is used to describe God the Father, but I don't think that's what John is, is, is doing there. We know this isn't the Father. So what I think John is doing is he wants us to feel the age and the wisdom of the risen Christ that he's seeing. He's describing Jesus' eternalness. Now, our culture respects age less and less. Increasingly, our culture views age as weak instead of dignified. Billions of dollars are spent every year to mask and preserve age. Let that tell you something about our culture. Because what that says is that our culture values this life in a fallen world. The, the eternal things, the important things, strength and vitality in a spiritual way, knowledge and wisdom. Those are becoming less and less important to our culture. The reason is, is when you don't want to think about eternity, physical strength and physical vitality for this life becomes more and more important. The Bible sees it differently. Proverbs 16.31 says, a white head is a crown of glory. Don't be afraid to own it. Some of us have more glory than others. But the Bible sees that as a good thing. 
But John says that Jesus's hair isn't just gray. He says it's white. And then he emphasizes it by saying white is wool and white like snow. It's a picture of the depth and the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. There's nothing that he doesn't know perfectly. You remember those times when your kid would give you that look and you knew what they were thinking? And so you would say, don't even think about it. And then they would say, what? I wasn't going to do anything. And then you'd say, good, then don't do it. The risen Christ that John sees not only knows what you're thinking, he knows why you're thinking it and how you feel about it before you even, before anything even crosses your mind. But listen, what if, what if you could have that wisdom and that knowledge that's earned over time without getting old? I know you've had that feeling before, right? What if you could know what you know now without having to be careful getting out of bed so you don't throw out your back? Right. And, and what if what if not only you didn't age, but what if you had the wisdom and the vitality of eternity? Because look at verse four, look at the end of verse 14, not only was his hair white. He says um, his eyes were like a flame of fire. The light in the eyes of the risen Christ that John sees, they haven't clouded with time. They're still bright. They haven't grown heavy with with fatigue. They they haven't wandered with the monotony. Of eternity. No, the risen Christ still has fire in his eyes. His eyes are still bright with this inexhaustible energy and hope. And with all the wisdom of God on top of that, his bright eyes will still drill a hole right through you. So when you think of Jesus, I ask again, who do you see? Glance down to, to the end of verse 15. He talks about his feet and then he says his voice was like the roar of many waters. And then he says at the end of verse 16, a sharp two-edged sword came out of his mouth. Now, some of you know what it's like to feel sound. Especially those of you who have been in war. You know that what's more terrifying than the sound of the bomb is the concussion that follows it. That sensation that your insides are being compressed and, and moved that tells you what you feel is far more devastating than what you heard. John wants you to know that, that the voice of the one he sees is felt as much as it is heard. So when he speaks, the Bible says that his words pierce to the division of soul and marrow, discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Meaning he can carve your soul out of your body with just his voice. When the prophet Isaiah experienced this, he said, I am being uncreated. And then, it, and then unlike the, the beast that trampled mankind, the, uh, the burnished feet of the risen Christ not only trampled death itself, but it's also going to trample the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. He has a face that shines, but it's not just bright. It's this terrifying radiance of God's holiness. If you ever, I've told you this many times before. If you want to know whether or not someone's saying that they saw Jesus and, 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 and you want to know if they're telling the truth, what's the first thing they're going to say? After I got off my face... 
It's the light that terrified the people when Moses' face barely reflected just a fraction of it. Angels that live in the presence of this have been created with an extra pair of wings to shield themselves from it. When you think of Jesus, who do you see? Because when God saw his people being burned alive and put on pikes and fed to the lions, he knew exactly what they needed. He knew that what would encourage them and comfort them would be to see and to feel that their risen Savior was no longer humble. He was no longer lowly. He was no longer holding a lamb and he certainly was no longer dead. He knew they needed to feel that their risen Savior was far more violent than their sin. He knew they needed to feel that their risen Savior was far more dangerous than any of their oppressors. He knew that when, when things get difficult and when life gets scary, when this world seems to have the upper hand, God knew that we, just like them, need to know that our risen Lord is far more terrifying than any of our enemies. When you think of Jesus, who do you see? Because we skipped something very important about the risen Christ that John saw. Look back at verse 12. He says, Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the lampstands one like a son of man, clothed in his long robe with his white hair and his burning eyes. Those lampstands are his churches. And he's not standing above his churches, and he's not standing at a distance from his churches. He's standing in the midst of his churches. The Son of Man, wearing his long white robe, dipped in blood, with fire in his eyes and glory radiating from his face, speaking with a voice that undoes our very souls. That risen Christ is in the midst of his churches, trimming their wicks, tending their flame, breathing life into it when it flickers, encouraging them and growing them and keeping them going. He's tending to them. Now listen to me, Cedar Springs Church. We're one of those lampstands. We're one of the people that John is talking about. Our risen Savior, this terrifyingly beautiful risen Savior that John saw is right here this morning. He's eager and working to see us burn with the light of his glory. He's, he's moving through us to encourage us that, that he's very much alive. He's building in us this comprehension that, that, that he is the one with dominion and power and glory and might and majesty. That's the right picture of the risen Lord. And here's why I want you to have that. Last Sunday and Friday night, I asked you what kind of Savior y'all need. And I'm asking the same question. What kind of Savior do you need? Because when I look out over this, this congregation on Easter Sunday 2021, what I see is, is, is a lampstand that is on the cusp. When I look out over this congregation, I see a body of believers on the cusp. 
I see a body of believers on the, on the cusp of elevating their, their differences over their unity. I see a body of believers continually on the verge of being distracted by less important things. I see a body of believers on the cusp of a battle. I see a body of believers getting close to being tempted to compromise. I see a, a body of believers being tempted by the increasing pressure to enjoy the wealth and the comfort and the peace of our culture rather than suffer. I see a body of believers on the cusp of being excluded from the economic system. I see a body of believers on the cusp of being persecuted openly for their faith. I see a body of believers on the cusp of having to make some hard choices about how they live their lives, what they are willing to do, and where they will look for courage and strength. At the end of the story of David and Goliath, there's a part that's often left off. David killed Goliath. He went and sat down and rested. And the part that's often left off of that story is that while David was resting, Israel went out and finished slaughtering all of the Philistines. And you wonder how in the world could they do that? Because just moments earlier, they were all cowering in fear and David had to go do it by himself. So what changed? Well, what changed is that the head of Goliath was lying at the feet of, G of David. That's what changed. And that was just an example. The story of David and Goliath is not about your five stones of faith. That's not what it is. It's just a foreshadowing. It's just an example of what God knows that you and I not only need to see, but to feel this morning. God knows that what you and I need to not just see but feel is that our enemy's head is lying at the feet of our vastly powerful risen Savior. That's where we will find what we need. Because when I look out over this congregation, I also see a body of believers on the cusp of something else. I see a body of believers on the cusp of something great. I see a body of believers on the cusp of growing in a unity that puzzles this world. I see a body of believers on the cusp of a joy that is offensive to the darkness of this world. I see a body of believers on the cusp of transforming this community. I see a body of believers on the verge of, of radiating the light of the gospel of the risen Savior out into our community in a way that, that can't be ignored by our culture. I see a body of believers on the cusp of adding both great, great depth and great numbers to the throne room in heaven. I want this lampstand to be a threat to the devil. I don't want anyone to be safe from hearing the gospel from us. When I look out over this congregation, I see our risen Savior. He's in the midst. Our terrifying Savior. But for us, he's put his hand on us and he said, do not be afraid. I see our risen Savior in the midst of a lampstand that's on the verge of advancing the kingdom of God in this community in ways that has not been seen for decades. So I ask you again, Cedar Springs Church, what kind of Savior do you need? Because I would tell you the Savior that we need is the risen Christ. The hope we need to burn brightly is the hope that is found only in the perfect sacrifice of the eternal priest. 
The growth we need is found only in the pounding weight of his voice washing over our hearts and minds. The conviction we need is only found in the razor-sharp blade of his word. The strength we need is found only in the light that's just radiating from his face. And the courage we need is found only in the truth that he, our terrifyingly beautiful Savior, he is here in the midst of this lampstand this morning. And he's very much alive. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, on, on one hand, I wish I could pray that you would terrify us. And that frightens me. And so I pray that you would do what you see fit. I pray, Lord, that through your spirit, you would sink these words into our hearts and show us just the right amount of Jesus's power and glory and authority that we need. Grow us together in this, Lord. Let our vision of the risen Christ make all of our differences and bickering and, and anything else that might threaten our, our, our devotion and our praise of you. Let, let that picture of him just shove all of that stuff down on our list. Give us a unity and a desire to glorify you and to spread your gospel in a way that, that hasn't been seen. Father, what a glorious blessing it is that, that you have revealed to us this, this Savior that we have. And so it is in his name that I pray. Amen.